So welcome everyone to the final session of this series of sessions um, in the final workshop of the research on contracting welfare services to NGOs in China. Uh, I'm sorry I have to bore many of you a bit because there are always new people who come into each session. So I just want to briefly outline what we were doing on the project. This was an international research project funded by the Economic Social Research Council in the UK. And it involved um, a, a joint team from Australia with Professor Karen Fisher of the University of New South Wales, Professor uh, Yuan from Beijing Normal University, myself Jude Howe from LSC, and also Yujie from the Beijing Normal University, and Drs. Regina and Junto Martinez and Yuan Yanchu from um, the LSC. And we've been looking at contracting welfare services in China, and we were concerned to really to sort of find out you know, what are the incentives for NGOs to engage or not to engage in government welfare services uh, contracting, what kind of models were emerging, what were the implications for NGO state relations, how much of what we saw was it to do with authoritarianism, and I think the key, another key question that we've been uh, tackling is thinking about were there any best practices um, in China that would be of interest to international uh, government, uh, communities worldwide to international NGOs and governments. And that is the topic of the panel today, which is what can we learn from China's experiences of contracting welfare services to NGOs? And we have a wonderful group of panelists today. Uh, we have Professor Zhang Yuan from the um, Beijing Normal University, who you will already have heard speak. Um, Dr. Jie Lei from Zhongshan University in China, who spoke about um, social workers and has done ex extensive work on social policy and contracting and co-edited a book on this. Uh, we have um, Dr. Chu from LSE, who has also done extensive research on contracting. And finally, we have Pierre Macaray, who has worked for many, many years in China and acted as head of um, the director of uh, a very well-known UK international NGO called Save the Children Fund. And she's also going to be relating her ideas and views about what we can actually learn from China, whether those be positive lessons or perhaps negative lessons, but there is a lot of there uh, to think about. So at the moment, I, everyone is muted. Um, it is up to you whether you want to uh, turn your video on or off. Speakers will be speaking for about eight minutes each, so we have plenty of time for Q&A afterwards. And um, if you would like to put forward a question, you may use either the chat function and write in that, or you can use one of those symbols to raise your hand and unmute yourself. And um, we hope we will have yet another very stimulating uh, discussion. So I would like now our speakers um, to unmute themselves. That's um, Pia, Yuanya. Uh, Xiaoyuan uh, and Jie. Are you, you can do that yourself, I assume. Oh yeah, I did. Yeah, okay, right. Um, well, shall we start with um, Xiaoyuan, Professor Shang Xiaoyuan. Okay. 
And the one I'm analyzing the case, uh, China and Australia, uh, one main question for me is how to deal with the market force in public services. So the main point uh, is uh, free market is not the solution. Market power needs to be harnessed by policies. The first, uh, we can say from the case of China, market play a significant role in increase the capacity of service provision. The development of preschool education in China was regarded very successful from 2010-2020. Preschool education for children aged three to five in China has experienced the rapid development uh, since the uh, uh, 2010, the preschool growth enrollment rate rose from about 46% uh, in 2010 to 83% 83, 83, um, in 2019, and uh, 4.47 million children in preschool. The achievement cannot be achieved without uh, the market uh, initiatives. If China only rely on the government to support services, it couldn't achieve this very fast development in preschool education. This, this is one aspect of the, uh, the problem. The another, uh, another side of the problem is the force of market needs to be harnessed. Free market it's it's not it's a dream, it's a dream. The free market can solve every problem. Actually, it does not happen in China. Free market cannot achieve all the social goals automatically. Uh, for example, the three color. Uh, this company, when the child abuse scandal was reported in 2017, and uh, many Chinese parents. Uh, not only look at how the government respond to this case, they also look at how the share market in the United States responds to this case. They found in the first day, the share price dropped maybe 30% and then it increased very fast one week later. So the market response is to drop in one day, maybe uh, rest again uh, in another week. Thus, uh, one year after the scandal, uh, the share price of three colors increased 30%. So the company continued purchasing uh, or uh, franchising new King Gardens nationwide after the Beijing scandal reported and uh, then actually was reported more scandals as well after that. So that means the market cannot effectively respond to the low quality problem and the, uh, and the correct its mistakes automatically and the policy solution in this sector is needed. And uh, in 2018, when the Central Committee of the Communist Party and the State Council made a new policy, give some uh, give the clear policy response to 
to this issue. The second day of the new policy was uh, announced in November two, uh, 2018. Uh, the share price of the three colors dropped, uh, uh, the first day it dropped 53% and then finally dropped 60%. So that, that is the, the market the response to the policy, but not to the problem. So because of this, I think uh, maybe we should think about uh, how to deal with the market uh, force. Uh, in government purchase. The right choice uh, may be commitment to the non-for-profit because th this service sector could not afford paying very high profit and uh, keep the quality uh, services at the same time. It can't solve these two problems at the same time. So to support, uh, also I think maybe another choice is also to support community-based uh, providers. And uh, three, the three is government take, government have to take a responsibility to finance the sector and to provide services directly in some, in some part. So that's what I I'm thinking <laughs> about this issue. Thank you very much. It's very interesting. So basically your argument is that a free market is just a dream, can't solve everything um, and responds in a market way to problems when they occur rather than to the real problem. And this is where maybe NGOs, non-profit companies, community-based organizations come in. I think that's a very good point to start on. Let me now turn uh, to Dr. Lejia uh, and ask him for his ideas about uh, what lessons we can actually learn from China. Could you unmute yourself? Yes, thank you, Professor Hao. Um, I have been following the seminar for the whole week and I think the presentations were wonderful and stimulating. And, and I really enjoyed the discussion with all the participants. Um, I think the topic Contracting services under authoritarianism would be an important field in NGO studies and there could be more and more articles coming out in this field. Um, having said this, I am cautious about a possible tendency of dichotomizing the contracting services between the so-called liberal and authoritarian states. Um, Last night, someone asked me a question whether the contracting services of delivered by the social workers in China would do better good to the women and children. And I basically replied, yes, of course, why not? Because something is better than nothing. Um, this question has haunted me for the past 24 hours. <laughs> I think it's a very good question to unlock the documentization between the two regime times. Um, because it, I think the, we have better reframe our perspective in future comparative studies instead of simply judging which time is good or bad only based on the politics. Um, for example, we can easily find more comments than differences between the two regimes. Uh, the dependence of NGOs on the funders, the diversion of the NGO missions, and uh, 
restriction imposed by the neoliberalist style of managerialism between the two regimes. These findings can be easily found between different countries. So I propose that instead of looking at the politics, we had better look at the outcomes of the contracting services. This means that we can adopt some agreed upon benchmarks, indicators for the well-being of the service users. And then we should use these well-being indicators to compare the contracting the outcomes of the contracting services in different regimes and different countries. And actually, this idea has been in extensively, in, it extensively researched by the literature of East Asian welfare regimes. So maybe uh, people who are interested in this field can look into their literature and try to transplant, uh, trans, transplant, transfer some of these similar research designs into this field so that we could have more confidence to say which could be better in outcomes instead of in regime times. So thank you. Thank you very much indeed. That's very, very um, interesting um, comment. And so I would li now like to turn to our third panelist, Dr. Yuan Yanshu. Right. Thank you, Jude. Um, I'm not sure that's something to learn from China's contracting experience, but I would like to draw your attention to two special phenomenon we found in the field work. Uh, the first one would be outside the professional forces in contracting and in the development of NGOs. So I'm, I'm not going to repeat what I presented yesterday, that we see the intervention of uh, professional forces and their, pra their practice of uh, incubation or capacity building of NGOs, depends on what you want to call them. Uh, that happened at least in places where NGOs or social forces are not so mature. Uh, in the field work, we had NGOs supporting this, arguing, you know, it's a way for them to be professional. When they say professional, they mean the ability to write uh, application proposals or write casework report. Uh, they argue they can develop a, a better organization structure or more standard methods to manage the finance. We even had a couple of organizations who had other sources of funding, you know, not from the government, saying that one of the benefits to contract was to learn to develop, of course, in, in the way the government prefers. Uh, so I think we can say that, at least in some places in China, the development of civil organizations or even the emergence, uh, the emergency of emergence of civil society involves some forces that are that can be described as professional uh, but what are these professional forces are and based on what knowledge they claim that they are professional you know some of the things we can see a really strong uh, new public management approach um, some are just based on textbook of in the area of social work. This kind of professionalism, uh, if that is professionalism, 
how does affect civil society in China? I think that uh, that could be a topic that was noting. The the second thing is marketization, uh, which Xiaoyang has just addressed in her talk. We see the, of course, we see the marketization of non-profit sector as a worldwide trend. It, it happens everywhere. Uh, and of course, contracting itself involves market logics, competition, um, at least in labor societies. Also in, in our field work, we, as I presented yesterday, we found the government had entrepreneurial, venturesome and investment like logic. We've also seen different ways the, the market steps in, uh, in contracting or in the development of civic forces. As Hua mentioned in the area of the care for the elderly, I think, sorry if I'm wrong, and Xiaoyuan mentioned, uh, presented in the area of, of child care. So it has been a strong force and it may play a really important and increasing role in China's public sector. Uh, we all know that marketization has been criticized by many scholars over the world. Uh, what is special about China, if there is anything special, anything different, is that I see is that civic organizations in China are not so developed. So it's, it's not the marketization or the contracting uh, the work with government of uh, already exist strong sector. It's not like that in China. So how does this kind of marketization or the strong involvement of market forces in this circumstance affect China's development of social organizations or China's uh, development of a civil society? I think that'll be a very interesting topic to research and to discuss. So that's the two things I wanted to talk about. And can I also take the chance to emphasize that the I think both the uh, both Dr. Lee and I got the question uh, on how generalizable our arguments or our understanding of the topic are, uh, and, and many of the, many of you already know that. But can I just emphasize that China has very uh, has really a lot of different models of contracting. So um, we. Dr. Lee's research was based on Guangzhou and on that form of contracting, my res our research was based on a county level uh, in Eastern China and they are all other very popular forms of contracting that we didn't cover in the research, for example, public bidding. Um, for example, the subsidy to uh, disabled children in rehabilitation services. So we didn't cover that. So just want to say that I, I don't think we have one fixed pattern of contracting in China that is too complicated. So the concepts, all the arguments, they are not general arguments. That's just to uh, remind you. And it will be great to see people or see more studies working on the very different models of contracting in China. And once we have that, maybe we can compare like the differences between the models or the common thing among the models and if we have that maybe we can relate that to the region that's me 
Thank you. Th thank you very much, um, Yuanyuan. I think that was a very useful point, especially at this stage, to, um, to, to emphasize that there is so much variation in China and there is also variation in contracting. And perhaps we don't have the full picture yet as contracting is relatively new in terms of it being um, institutionalized nationwide, I mean, since 2013. Okay, I will ha now hand over to our last panelist, uh, Pia McRae. So Pia, if you can unmute yourself and um, we're very excited to hear your perspective. Great, thank you Jude um, and thanks for inviting me uh, to join you. So, so it's perhaps worth me just saying that I am absolutely coming here in a sort of personal capacity, so not representing Save the Children, not representing Crown Agents who I work for now um, and maybe um, compared with other speakers over the course of, of this whole series of events coming much more with a practitioner perspective than um, an academic perspective and very much I, I would say framed you know I've spent 15 years working and living in China but at the moment my work has nothing to do with China I am doing projects um, mainly in other parts of Asia and in Africa so some of my comments are probably hugely generalized so bear with me um, really top level and also sort of putting some of my China experiences in the context of having you know, had, had time since I, I left the job with Save the Children in China and worked um, out of China. So I was with Save the Children um, uh, from 2011 to 2016, um, leading as the country director for the organisation. And it was a really fascinating chart time in terms of all the developments that the other speakers have been talking about and, and laying the groundwork for, for what happened. Um, we had a team of 100 staff working across China uh, uh, and I, you know, look back at that time and ponder the counterfactuals in, in that period and what paths could China have taken that might have resulted in a very different place to where we are today, um, you know, had different world ha events happened, had different leadership emerged of, of the party, um, who knows, things might have developed differently. But um, what, I, what I can say with absolute certainty is that sitting in that position that I was in, um, as the head of an international NGO, was finding myself sort of a little bit like the ugly duckling in the Hans Christian Andersen story. I was swimming in increasingly small circles, though there was a lot of really positive expansion of space that domestic NGOs were able to operate in. But I, I was going in these smaller and smaller circles, and, and sadly, I, I didn't turn into a beautiful swan. <laughs> um, and I think there came a place where I was feeling really um uh it, it was quite tough and 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 working in a quite circumscribed space but also um really interesting to see how um that development of market forces of organized chinese domestic organizations becoming more confident mainly in their delivery domestically but also the beginnings of delivery of of, of welfare services actually out of china which was really interesting uh, and it would be absolutely wrong, you know, with that image of me in those, that small, swimming in a smaller space to suggest that the overall picture I saw um, in terms of active delivery of services to children was, was negative. I would say absolutely not. It, um, and it was it, in that period, I think the two areas that I'd like to focus on where I thought about welfare service, welfare, delivery of welfare services to children and that kind of contracting model uh, and watching it at first hand was very much one in the area of child protection, which one of the other speakers has already mentioned, 
in particular as the Chinese government put in place the architecture of a Chinese of a, of a child protection system and local organizations are beginning to be contracted both um, providing child protection services in emergency contexts, but also in case management, youth justice. And the second area where I was able to observe um, uh, the contracting of services to civil society organizations was around inclusive education with some uh, local education authorities working with civil society organizations to provide rehabilitation services to children to allow them um, to attend mainstream schools um, and enabling mainstream schools to be more inclusive. And, and I just, I'd like to make, I think, four observations from that time that could be learnings that we could take from it. I think the first was, uh, and I thought about this often when I went to other countries where Save the Children was, where people said, oh, Pierre, poor you, um, you know, you're not in a country where it's a great world for, for NGOs, was Actually, there are times when um, that symbiotic relationship that I observed in China between the service delivery organizations and the government could mean that at its best, learning was taking place very quickly and promoted under the umbrella of an effective government infrastructure. And uh, I think that's really important to look at. And I've thought about it a lot as I've traveled to other countries and worked in other countries since. Um, where we were working with effective local education bureaus, uh, for instance, on inclusive education, we could see extremely effective working relationships between them and the service delivery organisations with active promotion of models of delivery and shared learnings. And I think to the observation um, of one of the speakers around, you know, don't dichotomize the two approaches and look at outcomes. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, that's something I really thought about at that time. Um, and how that could be very powerful. I think my second observation was I was often surprised um, at how robustly issues and concerns would be raised in closed door settings um, between government officials and NGOs or civil society organization leaders. Um, and I can think of a range of meetings I sat in, both at a local level, a university setting, sometimes uh, national meetings set up by the government where they were bringing people from across China in uh, to comment on policy issues, um, where I was really impressed at how robust the feedback could be to senior government uh, representatives. In my experience, that feedback and input to government officials was often well received when it was evidence-based and not done in public. It was um, done as a sort of advocacy confrontational way. Um, and I sat in on events where there was really strong policy push on issues. I mean, I can think around, for instance, the rollout of new regulations around guardianship transfer um, with very robust discussions. Um, inclusive education, again, uh, very robust discussions. Um, often two-way dialogue um, and with some quite strong input on practical um, implications of policy rollout. So my second observation is there are times when being on the same side, having that sense of the two sides being on the same side can fast track learnings and help positively inform policy. I think my third sort of positive le lesson learning, and this may be a little bit more controversial, is that it did strike me at times that there are real advantages to having a civil society space in a developing context, and not all of China is in a developing context, um, but where you don't have this sort of dominance of international players, which you get in a lot of other countries. Um, I think particularly of a lot of the work that I'm doing in Africa at the moment, 
Um, and at its best, I think that the interaction I saw with the government and civil society organisations, you know, particularly in Eastern Seaboard in more developed parts of China, had that really strong sense of shared common purpose. Um, Pia, you've got three minutes. Okay, with none of these last little thoughts, so with, with um, those thoughts, none of those positive learnings, I'd say to minimise the complexity of working with the NGO space in China and trying to negotiate how the written and unwritten rules were constantly being um, redrawn and re-looked at. These constraints, I think, you know, do inhibit how issues are raised. They sometimes involve people sort of stepping back and setting their own boundaries to what they want to talk about. And I think for me, the area where that was most stark for me was in our work in areas with minority nationalities. So in our work in Tibet, our work in um, border regions of Yunnan, uh, some parts of Sichuan and um, in Xinjiang. And for me personally, that's where I saw that model failing most dramatically. Um, and, you know, what can we learn from those failures? Well, I think in the world of international development, you know, it is a reminder and we don't need that reminder. But, but actually, we probably do. We shouldn't need that reminder, but we probably do. Um, that, you know, you know, understanding culture language ownership power in while you are thinking about those outcomes of the de delivery you know they are important factors in whether those outcomes are successful and i was you know i had many moments with officials in those areas where they would interrogate themselves acknowledging that even on some very clear technical delivery like vaccination programs there were failures because of not acknowledging that um, uh, and I think, yeah, that, that would probably be my, my, uh, my, my final thoughts on that and, and what we can take away from it. So some very high level thoughts and thank you. Thank you. That was really fascinating. And it's, 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 it's so good to hear actually from a practitioner as well about their uh, perceptions of um, the contracting in China and what lessons we can learn from China. Um, so I now want to go on to the questions and um, you can raise your hand to put your question on the chat function. But um, I'm going to say this now because I may forget it at the end. Uh, but um, the audience participation has been ju just amazing. And the questions that have come up have been so thoughtful and provocative. It's been really, really um, interesting. And I wanted to say that if the speakers do not have time to answer all the questions, we will be getting back to people's questions. So if you haven't heard from anyone in response to a question you had, just look out next week and messages and answers will be coming your way. Um, so I'm going to take the first question which I have, which is from Harriet Evans. And uh, do you want to state your question, Harriet, or shall I read it out? And if you're going to... It's up to you, Jude. Okay, do you want to briefly ask your question? Yeah, okay. Um, I, I mean, I think that one of the... I mean, I, for the only session that I missed... Well, I missed the first one on Wednesday, and then um, yesterday was Wednesday, and so I didn't make that one. I'm sorry about that, but I have followed um, the discussion um, since Monday, and I think it's been a really really fascinating series of um, contributions and thank you everybody I mean that's just the starters I mean it's you know it's rare to uh, come across such an engaged series of 
um, discussions about really, really, really crucial issues. And they're crucial to China, to Australia, to Europe, and, you know, to across um, different political systems. I, I mean, one of the really fascinating things that came up for me in this discussion is it concerns not so much the dichotomies between the two systems, but the incredible overlaps in the way that market mechanisms function both to um, offer a greater kind of quantity of provision of services, but at the same time endangers that quantity by prioritizing um, the profit mechanism. So, I mean, I'll just cut this short. So, um, I mean, there's a whole debate about, you know, there's not just one model of neoliberalism, of course, and I would hesitate really to call China's um, state capitalism neoliberal, but there are, I mean, these overlaps in the way that the market force market forces both um, encourage and constrain the provision of services in the three um, areas that you the, the that your group looked at I think is really really fascinating and it seems to me that you know one of the major that's just the starter so so one of the major differences actually concerns um, the capacity of very, very different political systems to um, respond to problems when they arise. So I would have said that the main differences are, to, are located within the political system rather than within the market system per se, or the neoliberal, if that's what you want to say per se. I mean, that, that, what, that, those were the ideas behind that initial question and forgive me for taking too much time. Okay, um, so have, out of that, is there, that was more of a comment. Is there a question? Well, I Karen? suppose the question is, I mean, what, it, what is the panelists' view about that, that the differences really emerge more in the okay. yeah. of political system rather than the operation of the market? Thank you. Maybe I'll hand over to Jelo first. It, mm, this is a very big question, and the thing that come up into my mind is that I would insist on assessing the outcomes of contracting services instead of drawing a hasty conclusion about whether the polity really matters. I mean, it, it may matter in the end, but we still need some evidence, empirical evidence, to demonstrate that. So I think we need more studies in future. So I can't have a concrete answer whether this really related to the politics. Thank you. Do any of the other, other panelists uh, wish to comment on that question before I move on to the next question? If so, maybe you can just raise your hand if you do of the panelists. No, okay. So I'll go on to, well, actually, it's, it's a question without a question here. But um, Chun Yun, you, you asked, can I ask a question verbally? Yes, please. Uh, if you can unmute yourself and state it briefly, that would be great. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you uh, for the uh, fascinating events. 
Um, so I think my question is also related to habits. So now we talk about governments uh, contracting in China and comparing to other regimes. So I was uh, wondering whether is the regime type that better or is the market logic that matter? Because I think my question arises based on my field work on the NGO, rights NGOs that are contracting from or funded by international funders or like um, foreign agencies. They are under the same similar control. So they also, the foreign funders also list their uh, categories of activities. They also use a bidding system to compare, compete. And also they also uh, require uh, criterias and tendencies, all these kind of techniques that we talked about yesterday. Also like is observed in the um, private funding or private contracting system. So I think there are some common, more commonality perhaps between the government contracting and the private contracting. So what the logic behind perhaps reflects more of the market logic. And then, so what's unique about this government contracting perhaps I, that's a question that I think um, any of you, but some of you may already compare and then whether you have some observation that what's key difference between the government contracts and then the con contract, if I understand it right, from the foreign funders. I missed the Monday Thank you. session, yeah. but so perhaps <laughs> you can elaborate that. Okay, so um, uh, maybe I'll ask uh, Pia here if she wants to respond because you were asking about uh, the difference between government and private, and private can be for-profit or non-profit, and I know that, that Pia has worked in both these sectors, so. Yeah, and, and I, I, we can have a, such an interesting topic. I think I'm just going to just share one thought, which is that, um, so the organisation I'm with at the moment, Crown Agents, we uh, do large fund management projects, and some of those are in one, one, one place where we contract we, on behalf of donors, and often a pool of donors, contract to a lot of uh, NGOs, or sometimes it can be across country. So we've got a big 12-country program where we contract in different locations. What makes those results different back to Lydia is kind of what's the outcome. And, and I think that um, the, mode, the mode of contracting is the same. We do it in the same in those different things. Uh, it seems to me that, that we can talk a lot about the political system but we also need to think a lot about just simply the uh, efficiency of the governance in different locations. What for me is the big difference is just simply how effective is the, um, uh, is the framework within which those NGOs are delivering their services. And I'm sure as we talked about the diversity in China, and I think of my experiences, that was also a massive factor of different outcomes was how effective governments were, governance was in different locations. Thank you very much. So we're back to the question of state capacity and state capacity being um, a crucial uh, point for the, for the delivery of services and the responses to mark, market failure, which uh, I think Karen Xiaoyuan in your presentation, you, you suggested that the Chinese government responded very quickly. It had the capacity to do so. Um, Great. So I think I'm going to go on now to another question from Li Bingqing. If you would like to say it, Li Bingqing, please unmute yourself. Yeah. 
Okay, thank you. Uh, I think my question is the reverse of the previous question. Uh, <laughs> from yesterday's talk, I heard uh, uh, Lei Jie and Professor Lei Jie uh, discussion is about uh, what you can observe is that uh, somehow the government is trying to take over uh, more from the NGO sector and or social service uh, NGO sector. But then what we hear today from Xiao, Professor Xiao Yuan Chang is that um, the government is trying to take over more from the private sector. So, but when you listen to the story, the private sector story seems to be a positive one, but the NGO sector story is more sort of a more negative than the, or perceived to be uh, less positive. So I wonder whether that is, uh, is this the, an overall trend that the government is trying to take uh, more control of uh, every type of public uh, sort of services? Uh, either in the private sector or the NGO sector, or uh, would we consider uh, it is uh, the private sector is bad and the NGO sector is definitely uh, better. So in that sense, it's more about uh, political control. In this case, it's more about market uh, kind of regulation. <laughs> okay, um, I would like to ask any of the panelists if they would like to respond here either um, and then I'm going to bring in um, Hua Yang, who has um, got some preliminary research on marketization. Our project was actually focused on non-profit providers, not on for-profit providers. But as we have um, someone uh, participating who's got experience in the for-profit, I, I would like to bring them in after hearing the panelists. So, uh, Xiaoyuan, do you want to comment on that question or shall, shall I pass to Jielu? Uh, yeah, for me, I think the NGO um, profit uh, sector and the uh, non-for-profit sector, actually, they are all um, working in the same market. The difference is uh, the level of uh, profit. Uh, you think that they work in the same way? Similar way, and uh, uh, because they are in, I think uh, for this service uh, sector, the government uh, should commit to the non-for-profit uh, uh, institutions because actually this sector could not uh, provide a very high uh, profit without uh, uh, damaging the quality. So it's not a very high profit uh, sector Actually, they are all working, um, follow the lo market logic, I think. Okay, thank you. Um, I think at this point then, I would last, uh, like uh, to ask Kwa Yang to share briefly your experiences um, in the marketization in elderly care. Hey, it's me, yeah. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, actually, I was, was try to ask some question, uh, but also also share my some of my observation. We, we have limited time, so <laughs> okay, okay. So I found a in at least in the elderly care, um, the government is still encouraging more 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 social capitals, more, more kind of marketization capitals, and also some uh, third sector um, uh, to get in because uh, elderly care is still in a very early stage. Much maybe. 
maybe elder care have learned the the, the, the experience from childcare said, okay, this marketization definitely helped those industry of this sector develop. And then now at the state, the elderly care still kind of try to encourage from 2011, uh, the 12 five year plan started to this, this, this practice until in 2017, uh, there's a 13 five year plan also put all put those kind of uh, um, uh, policies, central policies, uh, try to into practice. Uh, and the first time, this kind of top level design. And at the second time, uh, at the same time, it's kind of very much uh, local practices and the local experimentations going on in various um, localities. And uh, uh, so there's quite different models on this care home, uh, nursing home uh, development. They have this. Um, private management of public nursing home, including uh, public uh, state construct or state uh, owned. So or is a different thing. And also public PPP, public private corporation. And also meaning uh, civil, uh, the non-profit um, uh, care homes, non-profit. So, quite different models and different experimentation going on within China. I feel the trend was gonna to, gonna to use the market force to develop this industry, uh, but at the same time, try to reserve the, the space for community-based uh, non uh, third sector, uh, non-profit providers, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, this, this might be the, trajectory. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I'm still uh, in the process of doing the research. Okay, thank you very much. Um, do we have any other questions? Or would any of our panelists like to comment further on specific points? Uh, right, can I just say something about it? Yes. Uh, just to quickly comment on uh, the marketization that we have been talking about, can I just remind people that when the government has a document to contract welfare services out, it doesn't say out to NGOs or out to private sector. The out is mainly the distinction, uh, the separation between the government and social forces, which is non-governmental. So that used to be provided by the government. Now they are thinking for other alternative forces to uh, undertake the services. That includes non-governmental, that includes social organizations or NGOs, depends on how you define them, and the private sector. So we can see that both the market forces and the civic forces came into the field on the field of public service provision and my feeling that is that the boundaries between the market force and the civic force uh, civic forces are blurring or they are never very clear boundaries between between these two so we we can see that when Bingqing you asked why it seems that the government tried to take back the power from the private sector and or from the the uh, civic organizations it's more like my feeling is that it more like take oh uh, take the power back to the government no matter 
which part of the service provider that I don't want to use. So that's just a, my feeling that when we were talking about that, I think the, the thing is that the, the, the so-called civil society or the third, uh, third sector itself is a kind of combination of market forces and social organization or civic forces. It's hard to really say which part of it is from the market value because marketization could be a general wider a border trend for everyone to adopt market values in their everyday life. Uh, that and that's why to, yeah, that's why I, I'm sorry, like bringing the market uh, or marketization debate too much because our research focused on the civil society or the NGOs. But again, just to say the NGOs or civil society may itself include market forces and market logic. That's okay, okay. I've got two more questions here, which I would like to bring in. The first is from Chen Fang and the second from Holly Snape. Let me just read this. Um, um, Chen Fang uh, has a question for Jie Lei. Um, her field work in 2014 found that many frontline workers were very committed and passionate about what they were doing, but they had a low salary a limited recognition from the government and society. That sounds just like the UK. So given the ambitious goal of the government to scale up the size um, of social workers in the era government purchasing, are there policies in place to support social workers' commitment to social services and their career building? Um, yes, just a quick reply. Um, the common sense is that to increase the salary of social workers. However, for the most of the current empirical studies, including several ones of mine, actually salary does not have a significant effect on the turnover intention of social workers. Instead, both, uh, the commitment to the provision or the job satisfaction with the NGO of the social organizations that they work for could impact on their turnover in intention. So my interpretation is that when someone, a social student, become a social worker, they do not really care about the money because they know the salary is low. Once they enter the field, they are looking for other things, such as the satisfaction, the achievement from their job for helping people. So as my presentation indicated yesterday, um, they, the social workers would in, encounter a lot of different levels of control from the state when they delivered services. So they would found that these controls could contrast it to what they have been taught in social school or what they have been taught when they take the exam, such as those liberal or humanist values. So this is why they will leave, probably leave the career, read the position with disappointment. So I think it's not only important to increase the salary, but also how to settle the conflict between the uh, state control, direct control, and the so-called profession professionalism that was imposed by the teachers in school to social students or social workers. I think this is a very important thing to solve. Excellent, thank you. And finally, a question from um, Holly um, regarding the brilliant preschool education discussion today. 
that would be um, Xiaoyuan and Karen, before the Chinese government allowed private provision, sometimes providers wanted to work for, uh, for profit, were min ban fei year, and this was non-profit. Did this kind of approach the state to the market in a way warp market provision and hinder effective regulation? So either Xiaoyuan or Karen. Oh, sorry, Xiaoyuan is you're on the panel. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah. Uh... I think before the before the government before 2016, the Chinese government also allowed the, the private provision, but not allowed they make big money from these services. That's non-for-profit enterprises. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to have to stop here. So I'm not sure if you wanted to follow up, up on that, Holly, but maybe we can do that through email because we've only got a couple of minutes left. And I really would like to thank everybody for their very stimulating questions and the fantastic discussion we've had in the audience um, and amongst panelists and speakers. I mean, it's been a wonderful experience. As I said before, that um, if not all questions were answered, please rest assured that uh, someone will contact you uh, in the, the near future with an answer. And hopefully in that way, we can continue this discussion. And I hope that we can all stay in touch with each other too, be, uh, because it seems many people are working in this area from different angles and perspectives, and we could all learn from each other so much. And I think the discussion of China and comparative session has also been very useful in thinking much more broadly, you know, what is it um, about contracting in China that makes it the same as elsewhere or different? Is it to do with uh, neoliberalism? Is it to do with the political system? How can we disentangle or is it to do with culture? Is, how do we disentangle all of these dimensions? Um, with the goal, of course, ensuring that people everywhere in the world can have the best possible uh, high quality social services that uh, could be wished for. So again, thank you very much. Please do stay in touch. And um, hopefully we can also find a way um, of keeping in touch with each other as well. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, June. So we'll close the meeting now and I look forward to being in touch with you all. Thank you. Bye bye.